All right, if you want to open up to Joshua chapter 4. All right, so there was a very popular television show that ended last week. And it was a show that had been going on for about eight seasons. Uh, It was a medieval fantasy with kings and dragons. Uh, When the show first started, really people that just nerd for that kind of thing liked it. It kind of had a cult following, but as the show carried on, more and more people jumped in, more and more people started to to watch it, It became super popular, one of the most watched TV shows uh, going on right now. And it ended last week. And as it ended, uh, they were trying to wrap up the story. And as it is a medieval fantasy, there was kind of the Civil War, and a bunch of kings fought each other, and basically, like, everyone's dead. Um, And they're trying to decide who's going to be king next. And there's this big discussion, like, who should rule? Uh, As they're having a discussion, one of the characters speaks into who he thinks should be king. And he makes this statement, and he asks, like, we've we've gone through civil war, like, all this, so many people have died, like, all this has happened. He says, what unites people? This is the question he asks. What is it that unites people? Is it armies or gold? Is it flags? And finally, he said, it's stories. There's nothing more in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. There's a story. There is something powerful about stories. And so as he's suggesting suggesting who should be king next, he talks about the one that he thought had the best story. This is someone that people would rally around. This is someone that that people would, would swear their allegiance to because the story was so powerful. I listened to uh, a preacher uh, named Erwin McManus, who's written a bunch of books, he says this about stories. He says, whoever tells the, mo- the best story wins the culture. There's something powerful about storytelling. There's something compelling about it. And even us, we orient our lives around certain stories. We're here on Sunday gathering because of the greatest story ever told, the story that we have in our scripture, the story of Jesus. But stories are powerful and compelling. We orient our lives around really good stories. So the next seven weeks, we want to look at stories in the Old Testament, stories that are powerful, stories that we can orient our lives around, stories that are a little bit confusing, honestly, but these are the kind of stories that you might tell around a campfire because these stories are epic in their nature. They're adventurous. They're exciting. We'll read them and we'll think, what in the world is going on here? Why in the world is this in the Bible? What do we do with it? But I want to start with a story today that takes place in Joshua, at the beginning of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 4. And this story takes place a little bit more than 3,000 years ago, and the story takes place on the edge of the River Jordan. And God's people are camped out in front of the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to enter Canaan, the land that has been promised to them. And they've had quite a journey up until this point. This is a land that their ancestors once inhabited but left. And as they left, they went down to Egypt, and they were in Egypt for some 400 years as slaves to the Egyptians. God miraculously delivers them from slavery. They cry out. God shows up, and they move out of Egypt, and they're going back to this land that they have been promised. Then some things happen, and they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The entire generation that gets pulled out of Egypt is gone. This new generation steps forth. And after 400 years of slavery and after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they come to the 
edge of the River Jordan, and they're ready to finally enter the land after everything else that had happened, everything that they endured. They still have this identity. They're a tribal nomadic people. They're made up of 12 tribes. They have their, their leader, Moses, is gone, but now they have this man named Joshua that's leading them. They still have the story of their God who delivered them from Egypt, and they're ready to start this next chapter of their life, and they're standing at the water's edge. And it's flood season. It's a river crossing in flood season, and these are people that have lived 40 years in the desert. Water would be terrifying for them. My guess is they probably didn't know how to swim. And in order for them to get to the promised land, they have to cross this river Jordan in flood season. How are they going to do it? God tells them, we've got the Ark of the Covenant, we've got your priests, here's what I want you to do. I want the priests to walk out into the river, and as this river's flooding during flood season, flowing during flood season, as the priests get out into the river, I'm going to stop the river. So they do that, the priests take the Ark of the Covenant, they walk out into the river on faith. I can't imagine what that would be like, walking into this river if you don't know how to swim. And sure enough, the water dries up. Somewhere upstream, just completely cuts off. And then the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, they all walk through the dried up riverbed to the other side of the river. This is some miraculous thing that just takes place. It has an echo of them leaving Egypt as God parts the Red Sea and they go through. And now at the end of this journey, 40 years later, this is almost like two bookends, they, they enter into the new land because the river dries up and they cross. And it tells us once they cross, the river starts flowing again. And this is where the story picks up in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. I was on the wrong page. Here we go. It says this in verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and carry them over with you and put them down at a place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign, to serve as a sign among you. And in the future, in the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. These stones are to be a memorial. So the Israelites did as Joseph commanded them. They took the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told them, and they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up camp or set up the 12 stones uh, that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they're there, still there to this day. Then down in verse 19, it says, On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. 
He said to the Israelites, in the future, your descendants, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until they had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when it dried up before us until we crossed over. And he did this so all the peoples on earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Twelve stones, a memorial. Take these twelve stones and set them up as a cue for your memory, a reminder of what God has done in this story, how he has dried up this river. And if you are the people of Israel, you have just experienced something miraculous. This is something that that you hear in the stories. You've heard about the stories of your ancestors with the Red Sea, and now it's happening presently in your life. This is a huge moment. This is a sacred moment. And God says to take these stones, one that represents each tribe, as a sign, as a memory, as a memorial for what had just taken place. The book of Joshua is full of memorials. There's probably eight different ones where where you'll see this statement like, and, and these are here until this day, or and this is why these people are still here. And there's all of these, there's, there's eight different kind of memorials found in Joshua that are cues for God's people to remember something about how God is working in their life. Sometimes these reminders, uh, God's reminding Israel of God's faithfulness and deliverance. Sometimes these memorials represent a warning and the consequences of, of sin. Sometimes these memorials are reminders of of what has not been done. And it's this reminder like, oh yeah, we were supposed to do that, and then we didn't, and then here's what we're living with because of that. But God has established eight different kind of memorials throughout this book of Joshua as the people are entering into the promised land. Very intentional memory cues. Why Why are memorials important? Why does God do this? Why does he establish this? As we're celebrating Memorial Day, uh, tomorrow, this weekend, it's something that is good for our country to do. Um, I was reading something about memorials, uh, the the psychology behind them, that that war-torn countries, when they establish war memorials, it's healing for the people in their culture. War memorials are healing for people. Monday is healing. It's more than just hot dogs and burgers. There's something about this day that we're reminded of the things that have happened in our country. We're grateful for it, but there's something healing about it. I've had the opportunity to see a couple different uh, war memorials in my life, Um, and I'm like a World II history buff, so I love this kind of stuff, Um, but let me me see if if you recognize these. Let's go to the first one, this memorial. Yeah, we're, we're in church, but you can shout it out. Which, what is this? Arizona. Yeah, U.S. Arizona. Okay, we're, this is in uh, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. When I was 18 years old, I had an opportunity to go there. Um, great trip. Uh, this memorial uh, is just fascinating. Went out on this boat. You go out into kind of this little bridge that is over uh, the U.S. Arizona. Um, I remember as an 18-year-old sitting, sitting kind of on that bridge thinking, like, what had happened? If you know the story of the Arizona, like, how that just blew up, and thinking, like, some 70 years before that, um, that people were, were sitting on this boat, just, I can't imagine what they were going through. Uh, when I was there, this was back when I was a teenager, so a long time ago, um, I think 2000, year 2000, I think, so... 
Um, they, they still had like the, was the black tears. There was oil that was literally uh, like coming to the surface that you could, you could see that had just been, they called it the tear, Arizona tears that were just dripping up. And um, it, when, you, when you're there, 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 there's a feeling of, it's surreal, first of all, but there's this, this feeling of sacredness to that space. And if you've been to the US Arizona, you, you understand how, how that feels. There's something very solemn and sobering about it. Uh, here's another one. Yes. 9-11. Yeah, so uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to go uh, right after like the 10-year anniversary, and we saw the Negative Edge pool. The buildings actually weren't done when we were there. By the way, these aren't my photos, so <laughs> these are just images. Um, uh, but this, this, I mean, if you, most of us in this room experienced this. Like Pearl Harbor was something that, um, you know, maybe Hal experienced. I don't know if Hal's here today, but uh, not many of us were around for, for Pearl Harbor. All of us experienced 9-11, uh, and when you go there and you, you see just there's something very sobering and also peaceful about this, but you walk that land, you just feel like the ground that you are, there's something different, there's a quietness about it, and you reflect on kind of what you experienced um, when, you, when, you, when that tragic day happened. I remember I was in college at the time when that happened, and uh, to come here, there's something about being in this place that is good for the soul. It reminds you of what happened, and it reminds you of how we've rebuilt. Next, uh, next one. Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah. So I had an opportunity to see this one uh, a couple of years back was in D.C. And didn't think much of it, like, going into it, like, don't know a whole lot about Vietnam. And then probably one of my, my favorite war memorials, if you've actually experienced it, the way that this is built um, it's built like an open book, and so as you're walking, the walls, it feels like it's expanding. Uh, there's 58,000 deaths in Vietnam that are on the wall, and the wall's made out of this special granite that was imported that is uh, reflective. And so as you're reading through the names, you see your face in the names. Um, just a very surreal experience going to the Vietnam uh, Memorial. Very powerful, very powerful the way that it's constructed. And, um, and, and this is something that, the, the person who designed it talks about how this is really something that left a wound in our country and like trying to heal from Vietnam was such a, such a painful, confusing time and everything about this memorial is designed to bring about healing. And then finally, the last one. This is a little bit trickier. Anyone know what this memorial is? Yeah, Hiroshima. Uh, I had a chance to go here. My sister was working as a missionary in Japan for three years. And so we got to go uh, to kind of ground zero where the atomic bomb dropped. And uh, really surreal experience here. You can see like this, this dome, they've never actually rebuilt it, but everything around it has been rebuilt. And I remember going through the museum uh, with my sister, experiencing kind of the story that led up to why this happened. Um, and then some of the things that happened after it with like the Cold War. And then going out and just sitting in this park and it was one of the most peaceful places on earth. And it was so, I think interesting for me, this is something that happened so long ago in our history, but as I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, in the museum, standing in line with, with Japanese people, thinking of, of what had happened between our two countries, and then to sit in a memorial together, completely at peace uh, with them, powerful. There's something powerful about these memorials. What memorials do is they attach us to the past. They bring the past into the present in a way that we honor what has happened. I heard someone saying that the memories that we have from these, these war stories are, the memories are like ghosts that haunt us, but when we create these memorials, 
they become, uh, instead of, of ghosts that haunt us, they become ancestors who we honor. And countries that do this, it's healing for them to go through uh, the war-torn experiences. There's something about memorials that are, that are healing. This is something that this weekend we are reminded of with memorials. Memorials serve as memory cues. This is, we have um, these memory cues all over our country, all over our culture. And there's something that is found throughout scripture, these memory cues. That when things would happen, God would tell his people to create a memorial. To, do, to have this memory cue that ties you to this past story that brings the past into the future, into the present then it shapes our future. And in Joshua, there's eight different memorials where God gets real specific with his people, and he says, to establish these things, to be reminded of what has happened and what I am doing, what I will do. And I think, especially on a weekend like this, memorials are important because we live in a culture that has forgotten how to remember well. Something redundant about that statement. We've forgotten how to remember and here's how I know that's true. Someone asked me the other day how many telephone numbers I know. And I know my number and my wife's number. And I was thinking about that. Like, I remember as a teenager, I, w- I knew all of my friends' phone numbers. Uh, we're not really a reflective society. We're not really a reflective culture. We, don't, we, we create technology that allows us to, to, to have memories. But we don't remember things well. We so quickly forget stories. And when that comes to our relationship with God, when that comes to the things that God has done in our life in the past and is doing in the future, so often we, we take the posture of, what have you done for me lately? Or, or we're so uh, blinded by our circumstances that we forget that the God who has been faithful in the past can be faithful now and will continue to be faithful in the future. This relationship that Israel has with God, he says, establish these memorials to be reminded of the ways that I have intervened and provided and delivered for you. A couple of things. One, uh, these memorials serve as a place of remembering. A place of remembering. Throughout Joshua, there's memorials. But the place of remembering, it's, it's for the places that become these sacred spaces for the people who endured for the experiences that they went through. But then something else happens with these memorials. There's a question that your children are going to ask about these memory cues. Memorials serve as the basis of sharing faith with children. I know for, for us, with our, our story here in America, these memorials are something that we are able to tell our, our children the stories of the wars that we've gone through. When it comes to our relationship with God, there are these memorials that it says that when your children ask, what are these stones that you brought out of the river? What in the world is that about? They get to tell them, well, we were standing at the water's edge. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, we were so ready to enter the promise that God had made for us to come into this land. And there was this obstacle. There was this last obstacle that we had to cross. And God intervened miraculously. And we passed through the waters and got to come into this land. They get to share that story because this memorial is a memory cue that God has worked in our life in the past and God will continue to work in our life in the present and into the future. Another thing is that it's a signpost to, the, to a lost world. I love how this, 
this passage kind of wraps up. It talks about, then the world may know. They'll see this, this memory cue. They'll know this story, and they'll know that God is all-powerful, that he is to be feared. The, the chapter 5 of Joshua, what we find is that the kings that are in the land, they hear of this story, and they just kind of like go running in fear. They're, they're terrified of what God is doing because they know that God is with these people. These memorials, these memory cues, they're, they're, they're a place that, that, that proclaims something about our faith and about God. And God has them establish these memorials, a place of remembering God's power. The second thing is that these are, these are places for renewing personal commitments. The people of Israel, this, this place uh, is a place of renewing. Every time they would come back to it, they would be reminded this memory cue, oh yes, we, we are in covenant relationship with our God, and he delivers for us. Uh, we don't really have a lot of memory cues that, that remind us of renewing relationships, but my wife and I are about to celebrate 15 years of marriage uh, this next month, which is crazy to think. Yeah. You can clap for her. I mean, she's, she's endured quite a bit. Um, and, you know, one of the things that... that that we have like a memory cue, like we have like the wedding ring, it's symbolic of this commitment that we've made. But, but you know, the, the big kind of milestone anniversaries, 10 years, this 15 year, like one thing that Mars said is we reflect, we go back, we, we look at the places, the building that we were married, where we stayed that first night, like the, those are things that are, are, are sacred spaces that are memory cues that remind us of, of our commitments to each other. Marriage is hard. Like to have these things in our lives that our memory cues remind us, oh yeah, we love each other. These are important. <laughs> these memorials serve as renewing place, places of renewing personal commitments. And then the third thing, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, it says in verse 19, this random date, and I was reading it, and you're like, that's probably why the Bible is so hard to read. Like they're talking about the first 10th day of the first month. What's going on here? In verse 19, what, what is significant about that date is that it's 40 years to the day when Israel leaves Egypt and goes into the wilderness. It's like the 40-year anniversary of them getting out of slavery, and now they're crossing the Jordan River. They establish this memorial that is this memory cue that, oh yeah, 40 years ago there was this covenant we had with God where he delivered us. Memorials work as a place of remembering and a place of renewing personal commitment. And the third thing is that a place of rolling away old defeats. And here's what I mean by that. When they go into the promised land, they go to this place called Gilgal. And I hope I'm mispronouncing that correctly. Gilgal. Uh, Gilgal means uh, to roll away, to roll away an offense, a reproach, a defeat. And so they're literally establishing this memorial in a place that's symbolic of of being able to push their past failures away. This generation of people that comes across the Jordan River, their parents weren't allowed to enter because of the things that they had done. Their parents, their generation passes away because of their, their lack of faith, uh, the things that they pursued outside of God. And when they come to this place in, at Gilgal, it's like God is rolling away all of the things that for that nation's identity that were, they were embarrassed about. There's this new beginning that is found here, a place for rolling away old defeats. And I thought about that, especially this memorial in, 
Hiroshima when I go to Japan and I'm able to, to have conversations with these people that our grandpas probably didn't like each other very much. We're having these conversations, we're living in peace together. These memory cues allow us to heal from the things that have hurt us and to move forward. And God establishes this with his people, these memory cues. And I think that this story, what, what, what's being communicated, and I think what's important for us is we think like, wow, these 12 stones that they bring out of the river and they establish, here's what I think is important. We should always ask ourselves whether we are paying attention to God's work on our behalf, both in the past and in the present. We should always ask ourselves. This is something that we should be intentional about as a people because we have forgotten how to remember well. God is at work in our life. God has been working in our life. And how often do we just so quickly forget the work of God, the work that he has done, the way that he has shown up in the past? These memory cues allow us to be in touch with God's work here and now. Those are things that are important. And then finally, there's also something else that happens in this place where Israel crosses. Uh, the location is uh, called Khazar el Yehud. And, uh, and as they established this memorial here, it was this place that they knew every time they would go back. Well, you fast forward a thousand years and you're in the New Testament, and there's this man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preaching this message of repentance, and he's baptizing baptizing people, and he's preparing the way for the Savior. And Jesus shows up, and he goes to visit John the Baptist. And it tells us that John the Baptist is east of Jerusalem in the wilderness at the Jordan River. And most people would say where he's at is this memorial place where Israel enters into the Promised Land, this Khazar el Yehud. And Jesus goes to John the Baptist, and John says, this is the one I've been preaching of. This is the one that is to come. This is... uh, This is our Savior. He says, I'm not right to baptize you. You should baptize me. And they have this conversation. Jesus says, you have to baptize me. And after Jesus is baptized, this dove comes down. And this is kind of the start of Jesus' ministry. In the sacred space where this memorial is established, Jesus is baptized. And you have to start to think, the writers of Scripture, this story, this great narrative that we're a part of, how interesting how they connect these dots that the place where Israel enters into the promises of God, the passageways of the land that has been promised. Now Jesus is in this place starting his ministry. To write as a scripture, what you could say is that Jesus now is the passageway to the promised land. Jesus takes this entry point, and it's now about him. This, this thing that used to mean something else now has this new Identity, these memorials that we have about the story of God when Jesus enters into them are transformative. Our memorials, when we hand them to Christ, all of a sudden people know Khazar el Yahud because this is where Jesus was baptized. This place takes on this new identity. And in Jesus, we have this passage to the promised land. What does that mean for us? I think it's, we have to ask are we a reflective people? We have people that remember things that God has done. Do we establish memory cues in our life that remind us of God's goodness, his faithfulness to us? What is it that we do intentionally that says, this is a place of remembrance, this is a place of renewal, 
This is a place where the past failures are rolled away. Do we have those spaces in our life? My challenge is to find them this week. Even tomorrow with Memorial Day, what are those memory cues that you need to place in your life? One of them for me is a great practice of reflecting is writing. Um, but recently, came across this quote from, from Bob Goff in his book, Love Does. And he says this. This is something that, for memory cues for him, he says, I have a, a project I've been working on for years. It's to write down everything I can remember from my life. The first bee sting, the first time I touched knees with someone I liked, the first time I flunked out of a course or got a speeding ticket. I don't keep a journal or a diary, and I'll never just write down facts like what I had for lunch or who I was with or where I was. Instead, what I've been writing down are all the things I can remember that have shaped me, all the words or phrases that have pinged me, all the stories that, I ha- that have happened in my life, all in the hopes that one day as I flip through those pages, I'll see evidence of Jesus in them. It's a good thing to do to create these memory cues and memorials in our life to write down the things that have shaped us. Don't know what it is for you, but God establishes with his people over and over again memorials where you will be reminded of goodness. This Memorial Day, let's reflect on these type of moments in our life where God shapes us. I think one thing that is a bit of a memorial that we do each week, and this is why we do it each week, is communion. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. I think there's something powerful about coming to the table where we're reminded of God's work for us on the cross. We take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. We remember God's goodness that provides us with salvation. And we come to the table remembering. We do this each week as this reminder of what God has done for us. There's something powerful about remembering that God is at work in our life. He's worked for us. He's working for us now. And he's going to work for us in the future. Today, as we come to the table, let's come with a posture of remembering. Maybe you have moments in your life that seem like failures that you need to just be, have rolled away. Maybe it's a time of renewing a covenant and commitment. Maybe it's simply just remembering God's goodness when you're so surrounded by your circumstances that you can't see what God is up to. Let's come to the table today with the posture of remembering on this Memorial Day. Tim's going to come back up and close us with a time of, uh, of song. But let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, for Memorial Day week. And there's a lot to remember. There's a lot to be grateful for. And Lord, we see how you establish with your people these memory cues that are important. We want to be intentional, Lord, to identify the things that you've done for us to reflect on your faithfulness to us. And we live in a society that moves so quickly and we move on to the next thing so fast. Help us to be reflective people. Lord, allow us to be good news to this community because of this powerful story that we're a part of, of your love for us. 
May we, may we be in touch with the story of your salvation, of what Jesus has done, of how you've delivered. May that be imprinted on our minds. May it shape us as a people. We love you, Lord. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.